Hello, and welcome to the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. I'm Molly Bailey, senior reporter for the Chronicle of the Horse. The equestrian world has been rocked by the addition of two very high-profile names to the Safe Sport band list, George Morris and Michael Barazone. Morris was put on the list thanks to allegations of sexual misconduct with a minor, and Barazone was added after allegedly shooting Loring Canarac. Equestrians have taken to social media to express their feelings about the allegations and how Safe Sport handles allegations of misconduct. We'd like to explore that with two guests today. Packy McGowan and Gen- Dr. Jenny Susser. First, we'd like to welcome Packy McGowan onto the podcast. Packy was a rider in residence on the U.S. equestrian team from 1981 to 1982 and a team gold medalist at the 1987 Pan American Games aboard Tanzer. A graduate of Duke University and the University of Maryland Law School, he describes himself as a reformed lawyer spending his time teaching, riding, and training horses at his Banbury Cross Farm in Clarksburg, Maryland. He's also a regular columnist for the Chronicle of the Horse magazine. Hi, Packy. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks. We've invited you here to talk about safe sport and defendants' rights. So let's get right to it. Okay. Let's start with this. How do you feel about safe sport in general? I think as a, as a response to the problem of sexual abuse in, within the Olympic movement, I think it's a, a wonderful um, goal and a wonderful thing to have. I don't think that you'll find anybody who thinks that you should not be uh, protecting children. And I think that any effort we can make to do that is uh, is probably an, a noble effort and, and something worth doing and something worth getting right. We, we've heard a lot of complaints about due process when it comes to safe sport. Can you tell us what exactly is the legal definition of due process and does it apply here? Okay, well, due process in this context is very complicated. Um, in Due process generally is the the duty that um, a state actor owes to the Constitution uh, whenever it acts to uh, impinge somebody's uh, freedoms of liberty, life, property, and so on. There are two types of due process. One is procedural due process, and that's the one that says that if you're going to put somebody in jail, take their property, um, force them to pay a, a fine or a judgment, you have to do it through specific processes that prof- that protect all the parties involved and the rights of parties involved. And so that uh, includes all of the rights in the Bill of Rights and, and any other rights found that might be implied by the Constitution through the 250 years of law or whatever it is we have um, that have defined that. Now, in, in this context, safe sport may or may not be a state actor, so it is unclear what duty safe sport owes to members of the USEF, for example, um, to produce a process that resembles the ones used in the civil and criminal courts. And uh, I think that's one of the one of the major problems with safe sport is that it is um, uh, attempting to resolve issues of guilt or innocence regarding what we would normally think of as criminal conduct in a context using a, 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 a type of process that does not fully resemble what is available in the, in the court system. So is that the same when we're hearing complaints about lack of constitutional rights being protected in the safe sport process? Is that the same as due process or does that include something else? No, that's pretty much the same. I think you, when you, you have the right to, in, in, when it's a state actor, just go, let's go say to your local district court or something. You have the right to hear the charges. You have a right to uh, present a defense, and which includes cross-examination and confronting witnesses and, and, and making and presenting evidence. And you have the right to have all of that done uh, by an independent trier of fact. So in that system, you have the police force, which makes an arrest or, 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 or a prosecutor. And then you have a prosecutor who basically takes what the police have gathered as evidence and presents it to the court. But you also, if you're a defendant, have a lawyer who comes in and defends you. And the trier of fact, which is the judge or the jury, hears the evidence from both sides without any sort of previous knowledge of what's been going on behind the scenes. And it's a highly regulated and very you know procedurally regulated process 
that protects the rights of both the accused and the accuser. Um, in this case, safe sport doesn't have that formal a context or a formal a process. So, and that's where the confusion is coming in. So is that how safe sport fails to give due process to the accused? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, what, what we would describe safe sport as a subconstitutional grievance process uh, that, that implies that somebody is guilty of a criminal act. So when we ban somebody for life from the Olympic movement, uh, some of them deservedly so, I'm sure, um, we are saying to the public, this person is guilty of a sexual crime without the kind of protections available in the criminal court. And safe sport, by the way it's set up, um, doesn't have those protections. And so uh, it's getting to the same answer without the, the, without the protections. And so we're, we're, we're basically telling the public uh, and telling you know, the, the public that people are guilty of crimes without actually doing the work to make sure that we're right. So the, yeah, that's, that's where the problem comes in. Um, and there, you know, there are lots of reasons that this has been organized this way, but, um, safe sport was created out of whole cloth, uh, where, and, and it's doing things that we have forbidden our courts from doing. So uh, that's, that's why people I think are, are rightly viscerally, um, offended by it. So the whole process that, that somebody can accuse you and you would not be afforded the, the traditional protections that a court would give, you would be accused of a criminal behavior and not be afforded the kinds of protection available in a, in a court system. People get very upset about that. It's like, how do I defend myself against this if not this way? That makes sense. You know, we're talking about a very sensitive subject here. Don't, do you think that the sensitive nature of the allegations of sexual misconduct mean that victims should be afforded every opportunity to be protected, even that if that means something against the accused? Or how does that work? There are a couple different, um, when a victim comes forward, and I'm sure psychologists and, and psychiatrists can speak to this, the trauma is, is, is extremely uh, off-putting and, and it can, it can put them on a, on their, their back foot in a way that will prevent them from actually coming forward and make it almost impossible to catch their abusers. So what this, uh, investigators try to do their investigation from what's known as a trauma informed approach. But the investigation and victims support function has to be kept separate from the investigatory function and from the adjudication function. You cannot take um, uh, the this victim support piece and and extend it all the way through the process because what then happens is that the accused does not get the opportunity to one, know exactly what the charges are against them in detail. They are not allowed to confront their accuser. They are not allowed to cross-examine. They are not allowed to basically present their truth. And, you know, there's a line from The Crucible that um, I like in this context, and, it's, and it talks about how when we, when, we only we, when we only engineer a process from one perspective, uh, it's, uh, I think it's something like um, you put the children in charge of the kingdom and then vengeance, a common vengeance writes the laws. And so what's happened in this, in this case is that because the victims are so, so protected, safe sports um, process has become a tool of vengeance by people and a tool of um, a, a way for people to access, you know, punishment for things, for, uh, redress for things that are stale, old, um, imagined, all sorts of things. The worst part about it is you can't talk about this in this context without being accused of victim shaming. And, and, and so I think it's a really, it's a really complicated issue that we can't, we can't get right even in our own government. I mean, we look at what's happened in the Senate with the Kavanaugh hearings and in the past with Anita Hill and so on. And we're really bad at handling sexual issues in this way. Uh, it is sort of the height of arrogance that Safe Sport thinks it can come in and do this job well. And uh, without offering some sort of protections for the accused. What do you think the best way is to improve that process and improve the way that we can offer more rights to the accused? 
prior to safe sport being um, becoming a law, safe sport pretty much followed the procedurals, uh, the procedural process laid down by the U.S. Anti-Doping Associ- uh, uh, Agency, uh, USEF followed this, and that procedure had been sort of tried and tested in the in the civil administrative context that this is. And they had said that uh, the, the process went something like this. When, for example, you had a bad drug test at the USEF or, or the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, they would send you a sort of a what would we would call a friendly letter that said, you know, at this horse show, your horse was found to have in its blood an illegal concentration of this drug or metabolite or whatever it is. Do you want to tell us about this? And no charge has been made. You've just been given notice that you're you you have an infraction. And then you do your own research and you come back with any kind of excuse or explanation or anything like that. You are invited to participate in the process. They then go back and they they look at all of the evidence and they basically say, okay, based on this this evidence, precedent says that this is the fine or this is the sanction. And do you agree with this? If so, we won't go to a hearing. But if you don't agree, we will afford you the opportunity of a hearing where you will be charged with some sort of infraction and you will get an opportunity to present this evidence to a hearing committee. That hearing committee, that's sort of a de novo review of all of the evidence that you have. You can you can interview the te- the people that did the test, the blood tests. You can bring them in. You can say you can talk to the people. You can bring the people in as witnesses who um, who took the samples and so on. That hearing committee then makes, based on that evidence, a judgment that is either for or against you. If you don't like that judgment, you can then appeal it to a, a regular court of law, a local court of law. In this case, I think it's in New York. You have to go to, which might be you know prohibitive cost-wise, but you still have the opportunity to have it reviewed by a court. And I think with the U.S. anti-doping, you have to go to arbitration, which is binding arbitration. After that, appeal rights get very slim. You can only appeal from a, that, from once a court hears it and either reaffirms what happened at the administrative level or makes a, a new determination, you can only appeal that based on abuse of discretion. An abuse of discretion or means that they didn't follow the law or they ignored things in a, they ignored exculpatory evidence and so on. An abuse of discretion standard means that if there is a scintilla of evidence that supports the finding that was made by the underlying court, then that then that should stand. Then, then, then we should sort of back them up and say, yes, the trier effect was was justified in making this determination. In the safe sport context, it is unclear whether this happens consistently. This it it doesn't happen consistently this way. That's first off. Secondly, what will happen if you are accused of a of criminal misconduct? They will ban you outright first. In other words, somebody makes a criminal, a a credible allegation of criminal conduct. They will put you on the banned list. You are no longer able to participate in the sport without a hearing. It's not without an investigation, without a hearing, without any, without any, in fact, you don't even get notice. We have people who are getting, getting notice by being put on the interim banned list. That was their notice. Now, it's unclear whether this is just an oversight and, and bad management on safe sports part or whether it's by design, but whatever it is, it is an egregious um, problem that, that disadvantages the accused in all cases. So, okay, you've been notified that you're no longer able to compete, as has the rest of the world. You've been banned interimly for life, which implies that you have done something so heinous that you're no longer allowed to compete for life in in the sport, which means you have to have done something like rape or molesting a child. And then, and then you are, you, you, you're contacted by safe sport. You get to have a, what they call a hearing, which isn't really a hearing. The charges are sort of rudimentarily given to you with a great deal of, um, depending on the facts of the case, with a great deal of anonymity and confidentiality, you're not allowed to talk about it. And then you can then 
present, you can basically send evidence into the investigator. The investigator then gathers evidence and makes a final report to the director. The director then, based on his uh, the investigator's recommendations, issues a final ruling. That final ruling can only be appealed in arbitration from a standpoint of whether it was arbitrary and capricious or whether it was abuse of discretion. You don't get de novo review of the underlying facts. So SafeFort never has to tell you what the underlying, what all of the underlying facts were that supported their dis- determination. They, you simply have to say that based on what you know of your own case, they abused their discretion by banning you. Um, and until uh, April 15th of this year, one of the major issues that SafeSport was supposed to look at was whether the person was a continued threat to the community, whether they were in a position to continue harm in the community. They amended the procedures so that that is no longer a concern. So they're not actually protecting as a primary function for you know future uh, pedophiles and rapists and people who commit those sorts of crimes. But now they are actually retroactively going back decades and saying, it, it doesn't matter what you did for the last 40 years or your contribution to the to the community or, or how upstanding you've been this one bad act years ago, or, you know, whatever your reputation was years ago is enough for us to ban you and you have no recourse. And if there, like I said, if there's even a scintilla of evidence that that might be true, the director's, uh, the director's uh, decision will stand. So getting de novo review from a, a court of competent juris- jurisdiction is extremely difficult through safe sport. Yet the effect that safe sport is having is one of curbing personal liberties in a way anticipated by, you know, the fourth and fifth and, and 14th amendment that, um, that is not uh, using a process that is not allowed in our, in our society. So. This is all highly technical and very, very theoretical and, and, and well, that's not, not theoretical, it's actually in practice, but it, it's, it's very complicated. And there are, there are enormous reasons to try to produce a process that protects victims. But if we don't protect the rights of the people that we are being accused of these crimes, and they are crimes, then they are not they are, they won't get justice and if they don't get justice the people that they abused will never get justice it's just not possible it's not possible and so you know it's you can like the 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 goals of safe sport all you want i don't think there's a person in the world that thinks that it's a good idea to have children around people who are a danger but how we do it is what we really have to look at I think more importantly, well, not more importantly, but one of the problems with the way safe sport was set up is that it puts national governing bodies in conflict with this Ted Stevens Act in that the national governing bodies are required to have a hearing, an independent body have a hearing of all of the evidence um, before it bans somebody. Well, well, from what I've just described to you, safe sport doesn't do that. It doesn't have an independent hearing of all of the evidence. It has an independent hearing that says, was the director's decision abuse of discretion? So it doesn't have de novo review. So we're not, uh, so when the USEF is asked to ban somebody from, for life, like it has done, it is supposed to do so through a, a hearing on the record with the, all of the protections that used to be given prior to safe sports creation. Um, this is a problem when somebody who is a registered sex offender become gets on the radar of, of, of USA sport. They are without a hearing immediately banned. It is an unrebuttable presumption of guilt of a crime that, that warrants banning. What we know from, you know, our, our we know in society that sex offenders get on the sex offender registry and have a what's called criminal disposition for a variety of crimes and under a variety of situations. They are not all, um, it, it, we do not need to ban them all, but safe sports not taking that view. It's just saying, nope, that's enough. We're, you're out. And so no hearing, no nothing, gone. Um, and 
well, that's really good when the person is in fact a, 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 a predator, that's a dangerous person that's lurking around the stable door and, and, and hanging around the short stirrup ring. It is, it is not a great thing when the, when the person is, uh, is guilty of a third degree sexual misdemeanor that got them on the registry. So it, it, that's, that's not the person that needs control. And yet safe sports policies, because it's not having a hearing, because it doesn't even know the facts, it is going immediately to the most damning result that they could possibly get. Um, they put, for example, I think there's a, a very famous case. Claire Bronfman is, is banned for life. And she just went through, I think she just pled guilty to um, sex trafficking. She was in a cult. Now, this woman, by all, by all indications, will probably become a fully rehabilitated, well, hopefully become a fully rehabilitated human. And it would be nice if we had that ability in our sport to forgive people and for have them be rehabilitated. But safe sport doesn't give second chances. It's just going to ban for life. Some accused people have claimed they weren't properly informed, as you alluded to earlier, or given a chance to defend themselves. But the U.S. Center for Safe Sports says that's not true. How can we know the truth? Okay, so one of the things that Safe Sports says is that it is fully compliant with federal law. And I would have to say, from a technical point of view, it probably is. Because they are not a safe a, 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 a state actor, they can produce, they can do this action by using any procedure that they deem appropriate for themselves. Um, and, and that issue has not been yet litigated and, and it's going to have to be litigated by somebody with deep pockets because they're going up against the USOC and, and, and safe sport. They are, they're much better funded than most individuals in this country that would be affected by it. So that question of whether they are beholden to the constitution in a way that is, um, that is more severe, more, I don't know, more, uh, that is greater than what would normally be given to a private entity, like a country club or your local bridge club. Um, that idea has not yet been, been fully litigated. There's some case law from 40 years ago that says that the USOC is a private organization, but let's face it, it's a private organization created and chartered by Congress and they're funded federally. So in, in part, so I, I fail to see how that's actually going to stand up when you, I fail to see how they can just say there's no bill of rights or no duty to the, to the bill of rights. Um, so I think they, they eventually we will get to the point where they have to amend their process to get to the right answers and protect accused. Now, safe, so what safe sport says out of one side of its mouth, it's doing everything that the law requires of it. From its point of view, I'm sure that's true. But, you know, the question for me is not whether safe sport is legally entitled to do what it's doing in the way it's doing it. The question for me is, should safe sport do what it's doing in the way it's doing it? And I don't think the people that created in Congress in particular intended for safe sport to act in this manner. I don't see how Congress would ever endow a private organization with powers that it itself doesn't have. So it's, it's complicated. And how can we know the truth? We can't really because every safe sport attorney, every attorney I've talked to who have, has worked in the safe sport context is under a gag order. And because these cases are so fact dependent that these, these are the facts, this is how it happened. This is what was charged. These are the facts of what was charged. This is what was proven, what was not proven. This was the evidence. This was not the evidence. We can't know that stuff. There's almost no way for us to go through and say that safe sport does X reliably or Y reliable, reliably. So, Anecdotally, I can tell you that I've heard maybe five or six different descriptions of the process, and they're all different. Every single one of them. So I, I can't, we can't know. And that's part of the transparency problem. People complain, we, we can't see what they're doing because of sensitivity towards confidentiality and things like that. Safe Sport has taken the view that they're not going to talk about any of this stuff. But if they don't talk about it, we can't check their work. 
they're just showing us the answer. They're not showing us, us how they got there. And because we haven't been able to see how they get to the answers that they're, they're getting to, we can't determine whether they're doing a good job on, on all of our behalf. And again, that's a major problem with the structure and it's a major way in which safe sport becomes a tool of vengeance for people with bad intentions. So with all this in mind and the conversation we've just had, um, how do we fix it? How do we get to a system that will work for everyone? There are two things. One, they should, they should reassert the process that the USADA and, and USEF was using beforehand, which was notice, um, evidence, uh, independent hearing, and then write of de novo review in a, in a court of law. That, I think, is all good. And I think that you can manage that process in a way that is, that is um, not re-traumatizing uh, victims. And, and yeah, that's a big concern. I don't want victims to be so uh, afraid of this process that they don't want to get involved in it. That doesn't help anybody, right? That just, if the process is so... Um, is so geared towards uh, making sure that the, that the, the victim gets re-traumatized, they're not going to come forward. They have no incentive. All they want to do is make the, make the behavior stop. And they don't want to have any retaliation for making that claim. And, and all of that's really valuable. And so we can't lose that aspect. But then on the other hand, we can't put people out of the sport, out of the Olympic movement forever without just due cause, without real, without real evidence and without a process that, that is reliable. If we keep doing it this way, Safe Sport will lose all credibility with the membership and we will find a way to get around it. Uh, and they will create uh, sports org organizations that are no longer members of the USOC, that no longer report to them, and they will get out from under the thumb of, of, of Safe Sport entirely. And who will that serve? The people who are abusers. They'll run to those organizations. So th that's no good. And um, anyway, so I think, one, they should reassert the, the, the procedures that are already tried and tested by the USADA and that were in use at the USEF. That's first. And second, I think that they need to develop for older cases, older cases that cannot be really proven or, or disproven right? Um, cases with decades old things. Instead of ignoring things like statutes of limitations, which there are excellent public policy reasons for having those in place, they should organize some sort of alternative dispute resolution process that allows victims to get closures, closure with their abusers or with the people they claim to have, been, to have abused them. I don't think that we can take those cases I don't think, first off, it, it serves as much purpose other than just deterrence and offering a, a tool of vengeance um, to get, at, you know, to get after somebody who did something in the 60s or 70s. Um, so I think that we need to develop an alternative dispute resolution process. And there's one more thing they can do. Safe sport looks very much and acts very much like Title IX has acted in the university setting. Title IX, in 2011, the Obama administration set a, a sent, sent to universities something called the Dear Colleague Letter that basically said, you've got to do a better job with your Title IX cases or we're going to pull your funding. Now, that, that's funding goes to almost every college in the, in the country. And so what colleges did is they became extremely pro-victim and denied um, due process to basically all of the accused. They would expel kids without due process. They would do all kinds of things. Those cases are being re reversed by the dozens right now. There's class action suits that say they, that were, people were denied due process, and, and universities are having to pay judgments of millions of dollars. This is a problem. And so responding to that, the Trump administration's Department of uh, Education put out revised um, guidelines for Title IX cases that include such things as providing counsel for the accused and making sure they have a hearing on the record and making sure there's de novo review of the, of, of the facts and so on. And those, the majority of those issues, of those guidelines, have been, um, have been endorsed by the ACLU. So that's a good guideline on how the process can be improved. Um, there's one last thing that SafeSport 
does that I think we need to make sure that uh, that it doesn't get out of hand. And and that is, safe sport was not created as as the as the purity police for for the Olympic movement. They are created to respond to sexual misconduct claims that had previously been shown to be out of out of the out of the ability of sports managers to handle properly. The Larry Nasser situation created uh, uh, presented a problem to the sports management types. They just didn't know how to how to handle properly. They didn't know who to call. They didn't they didn't do their jobs. So Safe Sport was was created to step in on that. It is quickly expanding its it, its jurisdiction to include things like non-sexual criminal behavior, DUIs, bullying, teaching techniques and coaching techniques that some people think are abusive and other things other people think are motivational. They're getting involved in concepts of human behavior and issues of human behavior that simply are not agreed upon in this country. We do not all agree that yelling at a student to do better is abuse. We do not all agree that certain types of coaching coaching techniques are bad or good. So as a result, they come out with the, for example, the minor athlete abuse prevention guidelines. And now many of our trainers can't even have a conversation with somebody who is under the age of 18. But they turn 18 and magically they're an adult and they can have the conversation. So it, it's like it, we, we feel very, very, very much like Safe Sport is, is, is expanding. It's, it's, uh, it's like the eye of Sauron looking at everything we do. You know, it's just sort of getting involved in our lives in ways that we really didn't intend it to. If they start telling people with DUIs that they are not welcome in the sport, we're going to lose three quarters of our, in, of our industry. So, I mean, if this is the kind of thing that we've got to make sure they stay in their lane and make sure that this is not a purity test. The right to or the ability to participate in sport does not require that you be an Eagle Scout. It, we do not we do not require that you have um, that you have a background that is uh, that is pure. You are a simply a, if you are a member in good standing in society, you should be able to participate in sport and safe sports going beyond that. So, and I think that's another thing that uh, with the sexual misconduct that is sort of offensive is that you can be completely rehabilitated in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of the of society at large, but Safe Sport will still view you as a, a member in bad standing and un, uh, and ineligible to compete or to participate in an Olympic movement. Excellent, Packy. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. I hope this was helpful. And I, I just hope that everybody works to making safe sport better because the goal of protecting children is so important. And I, I think that's getting lost a, a, a great deal in this conversation. Thanks again to Packy McGowan for chatting with us today. Our second guest today is Dr. Jenny Susser. Jenny has a doctoral degree in clinical health psychology and specializes in sports psychology. She herself was a four-year All-American swimmer who swam on two national teams and at the 1988 Olympic trials. She's worked with professional and international athletes over a wide range of sports, including equestrian, and she's worked with the best in the sport, helping several Olympians get onto the podium. Jenny wrote a thoughtful blog post entitled, We Are Missing the Point Here, reflecting on her responses to the actions of Morris and Verisone, which you can read at her website, JennyRSusser.com. In the blog, she discusses the equestrian public's reaction to recent safe sport bans of several high-profile equestrians. We've invited her onto the show to talk about her posts and how we as equestrians grapple with the news. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hi, Molly. Thank you for having me. Do you see the same amount of backlash in other sports you work with as you're seeing in the equestrian community to safe sport? You know, actually, I, I do not. The backlash to safe sport in the equestrian community was a little bit surprising to me, especially given how important it is. Um, but, you know, the other sports, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I think it's 
it would be that the, w- within the other sports, that there really isn't the type of icon that George Morris is. You know, there have been plenty of of safe sport um, decisions, you know, handed down. If you go on the website, there's a dozen or so in the equestrian world. And, um, you know, we really haven't heard about it at the at the volume that we've heard about it from George Morris. So I'm wondering if that is is part of the impact. That makes sense. How would you describe people's reactions online and otherwise to these bands? You know, so for me personally, it's been surprise. It's been surprising. It's been surprising and shocking and disappointing. The the reactions have been so strong and so uh, polarized that, um, as a psychologist, it's been uh, surprising and not surprising at the same time, and distressing um, and frustrating and not quite sure what to make of it. I think that's part of where uh, my article came from was I was sort of doing my own version of processing, which writing helps me do that. And, um, and then it just resonated with a whole bunch of people, which to me says that there are a lot more people that are, that are reacting to the reaction <laughs> than, than I ever, that I ever imagined. Um, and it's, I think the frustrating part has been how severe the comments have been on social media. You talk in your blog post about blaming the victim. What does that look like? So blaming the victim is, um, it's very devious. And it's really, I think it's sort of uh, reactionary and probably even a bit habitual culturally. I don't, I don't know where it started or how it started. I can think to you know, sort of how we're wired as human beings. And even when I heard about it, you know, even when I heard about George, the George Morris band, I was like, no, no way. This can't be accurate. This can't be true. 50 years later, you know, I had the same natural reactions that I think most of us do to this, to this news. And, and in all the conversations that I had with people in the first several days, after we all found out about the band, it was the same. It was the same across the board. Everybody was stunned and shocked because we have grown accustomed over 50 years to viewing George Morris in one way. You know, one way. He's the man. He's the master. He's the God. You know, what he says is is truth, is what you do. It's how it's done. He's the most successful. There's never been any question about him and his position in equestrian sport. So we all have this sort of natural reaction to anything that is contrary to that. You know, we see that all the time in lesser circumstances every single day. You know, someone says something to you that sort of goes against how you saw them and you're surprised or you're taken aback. You know, next time you find yourself go, wow, that surprises me. Ask yourself why. And it's because you had some sort of foundation or some sort of belief or truth about them. And whatever they said or did was contrary to that. And so it's disrupting. And I think that that is maybe from a psychological point of view, why the reactions were so strong, because the news was so severe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Talk about the particular damage when there's abuse in a student-trainer relationship the process of being damaged by someone that you really look up to? So this is a hard one. So trust is uh, a major part of, of the human condition, of the human psyche, of every human to human, even human to animal relationship. You know, in the horse world, we have to have uh, uh, some sort of relationship of trust with our horses even. Um, and them with us. So with human to human, it's very, it's very important. And it's actually goes back to survival reasons. So, you know, humans are, horses are herd animals, humans are tribe animals. And so our survival really depends upon one another. And so when you can trust someone, it puts your survival needs at ease. And when you can't trust someone, it disrupts those. So there's actually, there was a great TED talk I watched years ago 
by a British philosopher named Honora O'Neill. And she talked about trust versus trustworthiness. And she said that trustworthiness is, it's almost situation specific. And she gave this great example. She says, she's British, so she goes, you know, I totally trust my mom with my children, but I would never give her my checkbook. You know, so <laughs> so we have this relationship to trust like it's a blanket. Oh, I like you. You look like me. We have something in common. And then we just throw this blanket of trust. Okay. So as adults, we don't really think about it when really the way that we should be thinking about it is, okay, can I, are you trustworthy in this area? Are you trustworthy in that area? And once you start to do that, then you can have relationships that have distinctions to them and and increase power you know not everyone can be all things to you or to all people and not everyone is trustworthy in a hundred percent of their areas in their lives so you look for what can i trust you then when you take that and you sort of impose that developmentally on a, a young child a young person a student with a trainer or teacher then it becomes formative, right? So as children, we are, you know, we're designed to blanketly trust our parents. They're supposed to be the ones that are supposed to take care of us and raise us and teach us. And we superimpose that onto our teachers and our trainers and our coaches um, and aunts and uncles and neighbors and and all those things, all those people that that play those roles in our lives. And so when that's violated, for a young person and and you know developmentally we're young until we're 20. you know we may have grown up bodies at 18 but we don't really have grown up minds until 25. i mean you know for some people 35 no i'm kidding but it takes a you know it takes a long time for us to really develop and become wise and you know sort of keen to the ways of the world and people and figuring out who to trust and so you see people that either trust everyone or trust no one as a result. But when you are young and your trust has been compromised by someone who has violated that trust, either physically, sexually, emotionally, psychologically, uh, then you tend to be, okay, I trust everyone or I trust no one. And mostly what you see is that you end up not trusting yourself. So a lot of abuse survivors have zero concept of how to relate to themselves that way. Uh, can I trust my own decision-making, right? Because I decided to trust this man and then he violated it. So it's got to be my fault. It has to be an error in my trust, you know, radar. And so it's got to be me. And that's, that's how everyone reacts, whether it makes any sense to us intellectually or not. That's, that's pretty much how we react. And so that can add a lot of muscle to the delay in the ability for people to report these things. Well, that's what I was just about to ask you about. Um, from a psychologist's perspective, why does it take some survivors a very long time to come forward? You know, coming forward with anything is, is really challenging. I mean, think about when you were in school. How many people never raised their hand in class? You know, I mean, like, we sort of think like, oh, somebody did something wrong to you, you should come forward. But I don't know what the data is or what the statistic would be. But I would guess that, you know, 95% of people don't come forward on a regular basis. I, I do a lot of corporate consulting in my work. And I can't tell you how many conversations with people over a decade working in the corporate world where they're like, oh, yeah, well, my boss does this, and my boss does that. Well, why don't you say anything? Well, because I'll lose my job or I'll never get promoted. Hmm. Right. And so, so there's that. And that's not even that doesn't even have an emotional or a physical or a sexual component to it. So imagine you're a child or a teen. And, you know, something has happened to you sexually that was inappropriate. You have nowhere to file it mentally. You have no way to take care of yourself psychologically. And the risk of reporting, first of all, our culture of victim blaming, you know, no one's going to believe you. So then you end up, you know, <laughs> as, as high as the national stage and people say, no, you're a liar because this took you so long to come forward. Um, and, 
and it makes it really it just makes it really difficult it's it's a super big battle and that was why when i saw all the stuff on facebook about i stand with george and and how you know these people were going crazy about you know how wrong this was and how he was right and and then all the stuff that ended up being said about safe sport it just it took us it, it it just we went rushing backwards in terms of our progress with creating a place or a safe space you know or even a culture where reporting abuse becomes comfortable safe or even a thought talk about what people have to overcome in order to make a report uh wow they have to overcome a lot so they psychologically they have to overcome years and years potentially decades of whatever they thought about themselves and this person sometimes they have to overcome threats from this person so okay so first of all let me just say i don't know george morris i don't know the facts of the case so i'm talking about sexual predators in a general sense i'm not directly talking about george morris because i don't i'm not deeply entrenched in the facts of this case but from a psychological perspective many sexual predators spend quite a lot of time preparing their victims so they they take time to gain their trust to ensure that they like them to make sure that they have something of value you know it's that old joke want a piece of candy little girl right i mean that's what it you know like that that represents okay what do i have i have a goodie for you um then then there's the actual creating the act uh and anything you ever read about the the timeline in terms of of sexual abuse or sexual predator behavior they spend a lot you know they spend time preparing the victim so that by the time the abuse actually happens it doesn't occur like abuse and a lot of times they will prepare the victim mentally by saying you know this is just between you and me if you ever say anything you know we'll both go to jail we'll be in trouble no one will ever believe you some use threats of violence i'll kill you i'll kill your family if you ever tell anyone so the the mountains and mountains and mountains of mental emotional psychological and even physical threat and terror to overcome to make a report is so unbelievably substantial people just don't understand that and it's it keeps people from reporting and then when they do report then they're called all kinds of names you know why bother right really but so it's understandable i'm going to quote from your blog here upsetting the view you have had about someone or some institution leaves a huge instability in the foundation of your belief system and makes you have to adjust many people would rather fight than adjust and that's what we are seeing is that how you explain some of the vitriol we're seeing online against victims? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So the the way that we're wired as humans is, you know, we sort of forget this. Horse people, I think, have an easier time remembering this, but we forget that we are really wired for survival. Like human beings are just as much of a survival animal as horses are. However, human beings in you know first world countries, we have our survival needs quote unquote met in terms of shelter, food, water, and physical safety for the most part. You know, probably anybody listening to this podcast or reading my articles, they have those things handled, but we're still wired that way, right? So we forget that uh, anything that is disruptive is a direct threat to survival. And discomfort is like sort of a precursor to pain and pain threatens our survival. So psychologically, we avoid discomfort, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, we avoid discomfort as much as we possibly can because that's what our brain tells us to do. So think about what happens when you become uncomfortable, like when you experience discomfort. So I have, you know, I've been a psychologist, I've 
been a facilitator. I've led a lot of programs and I've watched a lot of people and what they do when they become uncomfortable. So I call it the wiggle worm effect. You know, I'll start to talk about something that is, you know, even mentally creates some discomfort and people will start to shift, you know, their seat. They'll cross their arms. They'll change their body language. They'll look first for ways to wiggle out of the discomfort. Some people, if I'm doing like a big room or, you know, like facilitating a workshop, people will just get up and go to the bathroom. You know, like as soon as they become uncomfortable, they will immediately have to go to the bathroom and leave the room. So discomfort has a huge effect on us and we don't realize it. Now, physical discomfort is a little bit easier to work to manage, but mental, emotional, psychological discomfort, we have to really do some gymnastics to find a place of comfort. So you have this huge disruption, this huge insult to the way you've thought for however many years you've thought about George Morris or even Joe Paterno. Um, like I received three or four emails from Penn, obvious Penn State fans who were very upset with me for using Joe Paterno as an example and said, you, you, you were wrong in comparing Joe Paterno to George Morris. Joe Paterno wasn't the sexual predator. Well, I, I know Joe Paterno wasn't the one who was a sexual predator, but he fell as an icon and it made my point exactly. So these people emailed me out of their discomfort and their upset that I compared Joe Paterno to a sexual predator when really I was comparing the fall of an icon to the fall of an icon. Okay, so, so we don't know what to do with this disruption. And so we do our survival response, which is fight or flight or freeze or faint. So most people don't realize that we have a freeze or faint. So the fight part is it's just survival. It's like, no, this doesn't, this isn't right. This isn't how I know things to be. I can't take this. I, I don't have a tolerance for this. I, I don't know how to accept this or emotionally contain this. And so I got to fight myself out. You know, other people flight, you know, people wouldn't read it or would take off whatever. Then you don't hear from those, those people. So that, that's sort of what I think happened was, it was, it was a major blow to a lot, a lot of people. And they were upset about it and didn't realize how upset they were or why they were upset or what to do with it. We're seeing a lot of distrust of the safe sport processes. How do you respond to that? That's a tough one because I'm not fully versed. I've never spoken with anybody at safe sport. So I've been on their website um, and um, talk to one or two people about it. And basically participating in a sport, you know, at the level that someone like George Morris participates in a sport is voluntary, right? So living in a country is also technically voluntary, but, you know, nobody has to be part of the United States Equestrian Federation. So they can choose how to govern themselves, right? And that's where the governing bodies come in. And Congress actually uh, instituted a law, and that's where safe sport came from, because so many people, you know, it really stemmed from the Larry Nassar and the Michigan State United States gymnastics um, abuse cases. Uh, they decided, okay, well, we got to have something across the board for people and for every sport and for every governing body. So if you go on their website, you know, it says, it doesn't say that there's a due process, but that everybody's notified and that there's everybody has a chance to present their case and that there's investigations. And the things that I saw online were, you know, there's no due process. You know, there, you know, there were George Morris had no opportunity to respond. Well, I don't think that's true. And the problem with social media was that people just took it and they ran with it. And then you have the game telephone right remember telephone you'd sit at a dinner table and say you know like um jerry has a has a crush on susie and by the time it gets around the table susie's having jerry's brother's baby you know like it, <laughs> it and it happens every time it so so and that's i think part of what our emotions run away with us and and people got really upset and i think that they didn't know what to do with their upset that, you know, potentially this man who they had seen as, you know, fatherly, you know, teacher, guide, 
you know, discoverer or creator, that they saw him this way and then the side of him was revealed. They didn't know what to do with that. And so going after safe sport was safe mentally and psychologically, you know, so they could attack that. Um, I would be surprised that the board of the board of safe sport in the equestrian world that they that they wouldn't expect that and that they wouldn't have you know like I said in my article they wouldn't have their ducks in a row enough to be prepared for this type of a of a response I think that is you know from a psychology point of view it makes sense you know I got to put my energy and my anger my upset somewhere so I'll put it there how do you handle accepting a safe sport decision when you're not allowed to know many of the facts that surround it? So you mean as like a bystander? Absolutely. Okay. So that's a funny question. Like, it's not, it's not, none of it is your decision. It's like, I almost want to say it's none of your business, but it is because the horse industry is our industry. But it's kind of like if I lost my driver's license for driving infractions that would be none of your business you know like it's you know you know the number of people that this actually directly impacts you know is dwarfed by the number of people that are saying it impacts them so you know so safe sport made a decision you know you can choose to accept it or not but it's not you it's really not anybody else's place to say, well, this is right or this is wrong. You know, you can, you can have a feeling or an opinion about it, but that's, you know, that's yours. And it's not, I think people go online to look for, you know, camaraderie or, yeah, or, or confirmation that their views are valid, even when their views are going against something like the decision that safe sport made. But, you know, it's, it's funny that that's even a question these days, you know, a governing body that stems from a congressional law that we have to figure out a way to deal with accepting that, you know, we've all become so, well, I don't have to accept that. Well, yeah, we, we sort of do because we choose to participate in this sport and, you know, by doing that, you know, safe sport, everyone who's competing at a certain level or participating in the USCT or USEF has to take the safe sport training. And when you do that, you sign on to abide by those rules in that jurisdiction. So it's kind of funny to me. Does that make sense? Like we signed up for this. So we sort of got to go with, you know, the good and the bad. How do you support someone who's making a report and going through the safe sport and or legal process? Very carefully. <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, you know, it would be the, the support that people will need will be, I would, I would guess, would be from the backlash. So after my uh, article um, started to make the rounds, I received, I don't know how many emails thank you so much. Uh, you validated me. I'm an abuse survivor, right? I got dozens of emails from people saying, I'm an abuse survivor. I've never had the courage to speak up. I never wanted to speak up. You know, you have validated my position. Thank you so much. You know, it, so to me, to support someone going through that, it would be really to help them remain connected to why they're doing it how it makes a difference for them, how it makes a difference for everyone and help them, you know, like constantly to recover from whatever they're going to get, you know, whatever zinger they got, you know, whatever was posted online today, I would probably advise them never to go on their computer or their phone ever again. Um, <laughs> but it would be, you know, sort of a daily, how do you recover from the backlash or the criticism would be my, that would be my guess about what would be the hardest thing. Do you have any advice for people who fear they could be the victim of a false report? So that makes me think of an interesting statistic in medicine. So um, the doctor-patient relationship, as it turns out, is the predictor for medical malpractice. So most, yeah, so most medical malpractice 
suits occur because of a poor doctor-patient relationship or what people consider bad bedside manner. So doctors who, who are connected to their patients and who communicate that they care and do their best and, mis- and make mistakes anyway are not sued as much as doctors who do not occur as caring or are connected to their patients and make no mistakes. You know, people get upset and don't like the outcome, even if no mistakes were made. And if the doctor was not kind about it, they're going to sue him anyway. And so that's what sort of comes to mind. You know, if you're worried about someone making a false accusation against them, I would trace that back and see where's the break in the relationship. So something's broken in that relationship and they're looking for a way to hurt you because they're hurt, whether you hurt them directly or not, or intentionally or not. And that, you know, it comes from something much, much deeper than, you know, I'm going to be a jerk. I, I read, there was a great article in the Chronicle, was it yesterday or the day before, about this and, and about how we can do better and we need to be our best selves. Um, it was Avery, I'm going to ma- mess up her, Gay again. Excellent, yeah. So, and her excellent, excellent article. And she said something like, there's only 2% of all accusations are false. Um, or maybe someone in the comments of her article said that. So I don't think that, I think that people saying that are, are being really a bit reactionary and potentially even dramatic, that that's, you know, that's a big deal. Making an accusation is a big deal and you go through your own ringer, hence why victims don't typically want to report. So that would be, look for where there's a broke a break in the relationship already. How much does the backlash against survivors have on people's willingness to come forward? Is this setting us back? Immeasurably. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, you know, if, if it is, if it's a hostile environment to come forward for something that is so incredibly painful to begin with, why would you come forward? And then it just keeps the whole machine, you know, in in progress, which is abusers keep abusing and then they pass that on. You know, I've never spoken with uh, someone who has admitted they're an abuser who wasn't abused themselves. And most people who come into my office and talk about experiencing sexual abuse have committed some form of abuse or thought about it themselves, right? You know, they, you know, people don't just wake up and go, I think I'll do something completely you know, violating and inappropriate and, and take advantage of this person's trust and abuse them. They, they learn it. This is a learned behavior. So, um, so to stop it, you know, to, to head it off and decrease the incidence of sexual predation and abuse, you know, we've, we've got to make it so that it's not as easy to get away with and then it won't be handed down as frequently. Right. Quoting from your blog again, how do we become more of a community instead of a battleground? Well, how do we do that? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And I think so. I think we're taking some of the first steps, which is, first of all, you know, thank you to the Chronicle for being willing to have this conversation. This is a gutsy conversation for a publication to take on. And uh, so I really am so grateful and appreciative and, and honored that, that you guys are willing to engage in this conversation because it's dicey and dangerous and controversial. So that's the first thing is we have to have a, a, a form of leadership that says, okay, we need to talk about this. Um, we don't have to all agree about it, but we need to talk about it. And then developing the ability to agree to disagree. You know, we, we have lost that as a culture across the board. Our country is, we are so entrenched in me versus them or us versus them or me versus you. It's so bad right now. Like we've lost the ability for discourse. You know, our, our freedom, our culture, our country was sort of set upon this idea of, of conversation, communication, agree to disagree, compromise, discourse, public and private. And somehow we've really, really lost that. And so just because I have a different opinion about something, number one, doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. 
Uh, number two doesn't mean we can't be friends. And number three doesn't mean I get to decide and you don't. You know, we've sort of lost this, um, this whole, you know, expert positioning. You know, people, everybody's got an opinion because everybody has a platform because of social media. So everybody's an expert, but that's not true. You know, we have people that are actually trained experts. And I would hope that, you know, if you read on the Safe Sport website, you know, these are people with, who are subject matter experts. Um, and so we've got to trust that. Even if we don't like it, we've got to trust it. And if we could just recapture some of our ability to agree to disagree and like each other anyway, I, I think we could, we could become a much, much stronger community. Excellent. Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell our listeners where they can read your blog. Okay, thanks, Molly. Um, so it's drjenny.com, just D-R-J-E-N-N-Y.com. And there's a blog tab on there. Um, or on Facebook, I have a Dr. Jenny R. Susser uh, on Facebook a page there as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Molly. That's our show for the week. We really appreciate you listening to the first episode of the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. We really appreciate Jenny and Packy for coming on the show. We look forward to our next episode this November, and in the new year, we'll be producing shows every month. You can listen at www.cough.com and on any podcast app. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Chron of Horse. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.